King Saul made a lot of bad choices. Granted, he didn't seem to want to be king in the first place, but once you're king, you're king. He was elevated to the throne so that he could lead the people to victory over the Philistines and other enemies. He was promised great success if only he would listen to the word of the Lord as it came through Samuel and through prayer. This once mighty man had sinned terribly. He offered a sacrifice himself when he was told to wait for the priests. He took spoil from the Amalekites when he was told not to. When God began to lift up David to be the new king, Saul attacked him repeatedly and tried to trick him into dying in battle, even though David was loyal to him. Growing paranoid and violent, he found out that 86, 86 priests of the Lord had helped David, and so Saul ordered them all to be slaughtered. At the beginning of this story, the Philistines are closing in to attack, and Saul is so desperate to win. The Philistines have superior forces and better weapons, and so Saul is scared. He wants God to tell him how to win, but God won't, not by dreams, not by sacred lots, not by prophets. And Saul, he doesn't ask for forgiveness for his past sins. He doesn't promise future good behavior and faithfulness to God. He just doesn't want to lose. And he's going to get that word of the Lord no matter what. Now, going to see mediums was against the law. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we find passages that tell us that turning to mediums and wizards is a defilement. But there is a reason given, and it's because turning to those people is disloyal to God. Because the, the heart of our faith is trusting in God alone for guidance and truth. And so not only is this going to a medium thing against the law of Scripture— but at the beginning of our passage, we find out that Saul personally made it against the law in his own kingdom to go to see a medium or a wizard. So he's not only shown himself disloyal and wicked, but he's also hypocritical in his desperation as it drives him to any means necessary for that magic wand fix that will give him everything that he wants. Saul has to go behind enemy lines to get to Endor and to see this medium. And so he disguises himself from his enemies who seek his land, from his own loyal subjects who know what the law is, from the, his own guilt that he's running from. And so we meet this medium who doesn't have a name in scripture, it just says that she's from Endor, so let's call her Endora to make things a little easier. Endora is a sinner. Her livelihood, her special skill is totally against the law. More than that, she should have been kicked out of the country ages ago. She's no fool. 
She's not going to expose her secret talents to just anyone. She doesn't want to be banished or killed. She just wants to live in her own home. Our expectation of her, then, should be that she is a sinner, a woman whose major skill is in drawing people away from the Lord. How could anything good come from her? In our gospel reading, we find that Jesus has a dinner invitation to a Pharisee's house. Now, we we tend to think of Pharisees as ill-tempered, argumentative, and unfaithful, but they were struggling to understand and follow God's will for their lives. They weren't always right, neither are we. They asked questions, and they argued because they wanted to learn how they should live and what was really important. Hearing, then, that there was another teacher in town was an opportunity to continue wrestling together to learn about God. Then there is this woman who is called a sinner. Now, she doesn't have a name either, so we'll call her Myra, since that's close to the name of the perfume she used to anoint Jesus, probably myrrh-based. Myra is a party crasher. I mean, I can't imagine that these Pharisees who are so concerned about who is and who isn't a sinner would have invited her over for dinner with a fancy new teacher in town. Myra is a known sinner, which could well mean that she was found out and then continued to do whatever sin it is that she's known for. She finds out Jesus is coming And she just shows up, a sinner. How could anything good come from her? Unlike Myra, Andorra is pressed into continuing to sin in her story. She does object to Saul's request to bring up the dead. It's illegal. I'll get in trouble. I could die. Please don't entrap me. Don't do this thing. Saul swears an oath to her. He swears using the name of the Lord that no harm will come to her. And Andorra holds high enough respect for the name of the Lord that she is convinced to sin against the Lord for Saul. Kind of an interesting balance. (laughs) She then brings up a none-too-happy Samuel And even his presence alone is enough for the woman to see who Saul is and how far he has fallen. The prophet Samuel is one who is holy, and there is Saul sunk low indeed. Samuel tears into Saul about his sinfulness and disloyalty to God. There will be no easy victory, and Saul has long ago been told to let go of the throne. His time as king is ended, and tomorrow he will fall in battle with three of his sons. Saul falls apart. He lies flat on the ground, and he won't give up. Dejected, he won't get up. He is dejected, fearful, weak, and hopeless. He hasn't eaten. He's a hollow shell. 
Endora looked at Saul and loved him. She wasn't in a position of power. After all, he could still take out his failure on her, call for her death, expose her for punishment. She chose to take care of him. He didn't want to eat, but she wouldn't let him go. She made a feast for him. Perhaps this was his last meal. She showed him kindness when she didn't have to. She probably couldn't afford to spare what it took to provide a feast fit for a king. But she was more than a sinner, and good came from her. Our friend Myra took the best of what she had, expensive perfume, and she anointed Jesus with it. She soothed his aching feet. She welcomed his words of wisdom. She loved him with her whole heart. Isn't this woman a sinner, though? How could her love matter? How could a great teacher, a great God, want love from such broken, imperfect people as her? Jesus tells us it is because of forgiveness, the extraordinary power and beauty of forgiveness. Forgiveness says, I will not hold hate or shame or guilt in my heart. If you have wronged me, I will work to let these things go. Forgiveness says, I am going to focus my energy not on blaming you and fueling my anger, but on rebuilding what was broken and moving forward with my life in faith. To be forgiven, then, means to know that someone has offered you grace, that the harm you caused is being healed, and that you can move on in peace as well. Both sides of this occasion challenge us to reset our lives to paths of love. Can we look into the face of the wounds caused by the wrongs we have done and the wrongs that have been done to us and say, life still blossoms and regrowth is still possible? Can we trust that love is powerful enough to carry us through? I recently heard an amazing story on a TED Talk that was called, Do Hateful People Deserve Forgiveness? After 9-11, there was a man named Mark Stroman who was so enraged by the attack on our nation that he went looking for revenge. He shot three men that he thought were Muslims before he was arrested, and one of them survived. He is a man from Bangladesh named, and I don't speak, so forgive me for mispronouncing, Rice Wuyang, who was working at a mini-mart at the time. Stroman came into the shop, asked him where he was from, and before Rice could answer, he was shot in the face. When he was shot, he recalls thinking, I was crying, 
And I was asking God, give me a second chance. I don't want to die today. And I promise if you give me a second chance, I will dedicate my life for others. That man didn't have any health insurance, so he got shuffled out of the hospital pretty quickly, despite much needed treatment. He racked up a lot of medical debt and hustled to find work before getting back to school to do IT work, which had been his dream. Meanwhile, the shooter was convicted and sent to death row for his crimes. The shooter spent time with pastors and journalists who talk about who he was and what he had done and why he had done this thing. As people cared for him and spoke to him, he came to regret the hate that had consumed him. And then, ten years after the attacks, he found out that Rice, the man that he had shot, had been fighting to save his life. He didn't want him to die by lethal injection. Rice remembered the promise that he had made to God, and he wanted to work to break the cycle of hatred and vengeance. When Rice testified on Stroman's behalf, he sobbed. On the day of the execution, he spoke with Stroman over the phone for the first time since the shooting, ten years later. Rice said, I forgive you and I do not hate you. Stroman responded, thank you from my heart. I love you, bro. You touched my heart. I would never have expected this. Rice replied, you touched mine too. After the execution occurred, Rice reached out to Amber, who was the oldest daughter of Stroman, because he wanted to try to help her. She was an ex-convict and an addict, and Rice wanted her to have a second chance, too. In surviving, Rice had felt God's mercy, and he wanted to extend that mercy as far and as wide as he could through love and care even where it seemed impossible. He would not let the horror of that day remake him into another dark and twisted person. He survived someone else's hate, and he chose love. He understood the power of love and forgiveness and second chances, and he didn't stop with Stroman and his family. He began a movement called World Without Hate to stop hate crimes through education about forgiveness and compassion and mercy and how they can transform us and the world. How could anything good come from sinners? How can we show compassion when there are punishments and traps, judgments and injustices all around us? We follow the example of Andorra and Myra and Rice. We let love be the center of our loves and our lives and our actions. 
Most importantly, we look to Jesus and begin to understand that not one of us has only been forgiven a little. Each one of us has been forgiven greatly, and so we should show that we understand this through great acts of love. My friends, hold this in your heart. What makes these acts great isn't that they are lavish. It's that they are sincere. Find the love that sets you free. Trust that it is there, that it heals and restores, and be at peace in Christ Jesus. Amen.